Lord, thank you that you're the essence of our lives. You're our breath. You're our very purpose, Lord. How could we live a moment without the reality that without you, we would be nothing? But with you, Lord, we have everything. We have life. We have hope. We have a future. We have peace. And even in the midst of storms, you give us the calmness that you are with us. And you'll get us through the most painful valleys of life. Lord, I pray today for those who are in the midst of a storm. It could be in a family, it could be financially, it could be health-wise, but we pray that in the midst of that, they would sense your presence and that we really can't get enough of you. Lord, may this hour belong to you. May these moments belong to you. May our hearts belong to you. Help us to redirect whatever focus we have right now to be completely on you. In your great name, amen. Amen. Thank you for leading us in worship. We miss Michael and Lisa up here, but they're a little sick, and so pray for them. Well, good morning. Happy Labor Day. Weekend, rather. <laughs> it is that weekend. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I shared a One Radical Life about Jesus, and um, last week was normal, being normal believers, and uh, I, I guess maybe... Uh, there's a push for people to read the normal Christian life and study it. I'm just telling you, you better buckle up when you start reading that book because it'll make you stop and think. It's like, wow. Um, but it's all about the person of Jesus. It's all about him and what he's done. You know, you think about all the names uh, Sloan was talking in our, when we meet in the office there to pray before we come out here. And uh, he's talking about a poster of a, a roommate, I think, that had uh, the names of God. And in the middle of it was I am, and around it was the, were these circles. And I thought about, uh, you know, he didn't know I was going to start off with talking about Jesus being teacher, prophet, healer, preacher, savior, restorer of broken lives, hope, prince of peace. And then I got three more, my strength, my shield, my rock. You could go on and on about who he is in your life. He's everything. Uh, I don't know if there's a more important message I preached than the one I preached Wednesday night about the goodness of God. And there again was one of these places in the song. I had asked Brenda for a pen. I said, I need to write this down. You were the word at the beginning, one with God, the Lord most high, your hidden glory in creation now revealed in you, our Christ. And just talked about why is Jesus mentioned in the Bible so often as being the creator? You know, in him, everything made that was made. And, and multiple times it talks because he is a reflection of God and the goodness of God comes through Christ. And when, when you see Jesus walking the earth, you're seeing God walking the earth. When you see him encountering situations... You see how God thinks about that situation. When you see him talking about people whose lives are broken, I want to tell you, God only has good things for you. The trouble we get into is really 
self-caused. You know, he, he doesn't cause us trouble. He's the one that gets us out of trouble. But even when we make those kind of mistakes, even when we fail him, he never fails us to reach out and embrace us and to heal us and say, come on, you can do this. Our nation has been filled with uh, a lot of uh, disconcerting news over the past couple of months. Um, you know, the, the situation in Charlottesville was, was a horrible thing. And then I don't know, I saw, I try, I try to monitor how much news I watch. But I saw the nurse that was arrested at a hospital for refusing to draw blood from an unconscious patient. And, and I thought, wow, that police officer is in, is in trouble. But we have these conflicts. It doesn't mean everybody's like that. I think we draw, I think we draw sides too much. That we see something and we automatically take sides. I want to tell you, God has taken sides and he has sided with us. I'm not saying with us in a, in a party affiliation. I'm talking about he has sided that he wants the best for us. He has sided on the side of humanity. And I really think that as we go through these kind of stages in our, in our culture, and, and then Hurricane Harvey hit and devastated, has devastated uh, South Texas and a lot of places in Louisiana and uh, People say, what, what can we do? I, I want to tell you, you can, you can, it's so easy. You can go to Convoy of Hope. You can just, you know, Google that. It'll bring up Harvey Relief. You can go to Samaritan's Purse. And I mean, within two minutes, I think it took me less than two minutes to go to Convoy of Hope a few days ago and make a donation. I've seen tractor trailers pull, parked in church parking lots for people to bring uh, water. And that's all well and good. But the people that you can give to are there now. Not next week, not next month. They're, they're there now. They'll be there. Some of you remember when the, hurricane, when the tornadoes came through here in 2011. It was like two days later, Convoy of Hope had an 18-wheeler unloading in our youth building. Our youth building became a warehouse of water and supplies. And we distributed it in Alberta with a prayer tent. And, and they, they were here the date just a day after this, you know, survey and says, we're going to bring you this. Can you handle this? We'll, we'll do our very best. And these places, you can, Red Cross, Samaritan's Purse. I'm telling you, if you, you can go buy a, a case of water for 3 or $4, and it'll sit somewhere, and it'll finally get there. But you can give 3 or $4 to them if you want to give. I'm just telling you how you can help, like right now. I'm going to give you a different way to respond to crisis in just a moment. And poor Beaumont, Texas. My heart just went out to Beaumont. I remember, I associate Beaumont, Texas with B.H. Clendenin. He's, he's passed away, but he was one of the great preachers. He was like uh, uh, Brother Shambach's day preacher when Brother Shambach was the evening preacher at these uh, tent meetings. B.H. Clendenin. Anybody uh, know of B.H. Clendenin? Anybody in the room? Uh, I have cassette tapes. I, yes, I am aging myself when I say that. I still have cassette tapes with B.H. Clendenin. But great church, great city, about the size of Tuscaloosa, a little over 100,000 people completely out of water. Their, their water system is done. The two pumps that pump their city water system has been submerged, and they're out, they're out of order right now. 
And I just tried to imagine how we would handle that. A lot of, this, a lot of people's homes are underwater too. So you have all of these complexities going on. So how do we handle? What is the normal, I want to use that word probably a lot, <laughs> the normal response to a crisis? Well, there's, there's things that can be done like uh, Governor Abbott, the governor of Texas, has declared today as a day of prayer. I don't know if you realize that. And the president has declared today as a day of prayer. And our Assemblies of God uh, headquarters sent out this, and I'll just give you some bullet points. They said, pray and ask God to minister peace to those who are displaced and have lost everything. Petition God on behalf of those rescuing the distress. They're still evacuating people, by the way. The water is, is in some places, still rising, hasn't crested yet. Pray for all the churches in the affected areas to show the love of Christ to those in urgent need. I want to take you to 1 Timothy as a resource. How should we respond? And Paul was writing this personal letter to a close friend, a minister in training, not just training, but he's, he looks at Timothy as his uh, associate, you might say. So he's writing this late in his life. In fact, 2 Timothy is the last letter that Paul would pen. He already knows that he's going to be beheaded. He already knows he's going to face execution. And he writes 2 Timothy in the backdrop that he's about to finish his race. He's about to finish his course. But this is about two or three years before that letter. And uh, I don't think Paul is in, in prison yet in Rome when he writes... Timothy chapter 1. But I want you to remember, a lot of the letters that Paul wrote was to churches, and we can say he's writing this to a group of people. But this is a personal letter. I'll just tell you my personal opinion. I don't think when Paul wrote these that he said, oh, this will be part of the Bible one day. I believe he just wrote it as the prompting as an apostle trying to help situations, trying to help congregations. Almost all of his writings primarily most of them was to correct problems. In fact, Corinth had so many of them, he wrote to them twice. And they did have a lot of problems. There's a little bit of problem in Ephesus, and and Paul is addressing Timothy. He's left Timothy in Ephesus to kind of solve some situations there. But he also gives an interesting backdrop to that. We're going to start in verse 3 if you have 1 Timothy chapter 1. And uh, he said, I urge you when I left into Macedonia, which is across the water from where Ephesus is, stay, here, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrine any longer. There was problems there with, uh, can you imagine false doctrine being preached? <laughs> no. <laughs> Even in the first century church. He says, are to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Now, he says, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from that. He said, there's, there's already been people getting off course and have turned to meaningless talk they want to be teachers of the law i like this but they do not know what they're talking about don't you just tell it like it is right 
They want to be teachers of what is right and wrong. This is what law means. Nomos is the Greek word there. It's what's the norms, what, what's acceptable behavior and what is unacceptable behavior. He says they want to uh, teach that, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. So here's this backdrop of correction that Paul is giving, but it's with love. It's, it's correction based on love. And the problems within the church was concerning some false teaching that was starting to make inroads into the church at Ephesus. A great church. In fact, the, the letter he wrote to the church at Ephesus is a great letter. Very few problems he's addressing in that church. But yet he's talking late. This is much later than when he wrote to Ephesus. This is, he's left Timothy there and he says there's already some problems there with some people teaching the wrong thing. So remember, this is a personal letter. I, I, don't think he, uh, I don't think he thinks that this is going to become part of a book that millions of people would read later. I don't think that because at the end of chapter 1, he mentions Hymenaeus and Alexander by name that he's turned over to Satan. <laughs> you know, they would sue him today if he wrote that. For... <laughs> For slander or defamatory, you know, it, there would be a lawsuit over that. And plus, they would have their feelings hurt. You know, you, you said it was turned over to Satan. Yeah, that's right. I turned you over to Satan. You know, but he turned them over to that so that they would learn not to blaspheme. Now, but this is at the end of chapter 1. I'm just saying that he's writing this very personal, calling names, and, but, he, but he doesn't leave himself out. If there's a model that we need as to how we deal with controversial issues that's in front of us like this, it's chapter 1. It's chapter 1. He deals with it, but he doesn't leave himself out of it. I want you to look at um, verse 8. We'll pick it up where I left off from uh, verse 7. It says, We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. How many say amen to that? Law is good. Law is good. You go 55 in a 35 mile an hour speed zone, you may get a ticket. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Because you're not supposed to go 55, in, right? Okay. People who have problems with that, they said, well, he was that, there was a speed trap. There's a speed trap. The law is a good thing when it's used properly. Verse 9, we also know that the law is not made for those going the speed limit. No, it doesn't say that. The, the law is not made for those who are righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. The ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious. For those who kill their fathers or mothers for murderers. For the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders, liars and perjurers. And for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. Now he invokes civil law, but if you look at this, this is one of the things that we don't pay too much attention to, but it's natural law. What is the natural law? Anyone in here believes that breaking in line is okay? You like for people to break in line in front of you? Brenda thinks I'm the police on breaking in line. I stop people from doing, hey, buddy, back there. <laughs> but there, is, there, there are times when breaking in line is okay. 
It's at the airport, and, and uh, somebody needs to get to their, their gate, and it's okay. It should be okay for everybody like, sure, you don't need to miss your plane. But natural law says if, if we're there, unless you have a good reason, unless you have an emergency, these are things that's just natural law. It's built into us. Why do we know that's wrong? Why do we feel that that's wrong? Is there a statement? Is there a law that says breaking in line is wrong? You know, it's just within us to know that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. And he invokes this kind of right and wrong. And he's looking upon the authority that is. That's the law. That This is the law that he says it's good if it's properly used. You know, I, I think probably Paul would be accused of hate speech. After you read all the things he enumerated there, right? The ungodly, unholy. But he starts off with two words. And the two words he starts off with is lawbreakers and rebels. Now, your translation may have something different there. But those words are in the negative. Anomas, lawless, are lawbreakers. Those who are against structure. Those who are kind of anarchists. They don't want any rule or order. They're, they're against. They're just opposed to any order being. They, sub, they don't want to be subjected to order. And then he says this rebels, which is, uh, comes from a word meaning to be subjected to, to surrender your uh, ability to submit yourself to accountability. He said those people are rebels. Those are people who don't want anything, don't want to conform to anything. They don't want to be accountable. They don't want to have any accountability to anybody. They want to make their own choices. And he says, this is the leading group of those who are going to cause chaos. And then Paul admits, after reading this, after saying this, he admits his own failures. Who does that? And not only does he he talk about himself. Watch this in verse 12. He, He gets to talking about all these people who are, who are in the wrong side of law, the wrong side of God's structure and God's order. And then he talks like this. He said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy appointing me to the, his service. Even though, watch this, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, He's kind of linking himself with those other people, is he not? He said, I was that. I was once a blasphemer, persecutor, a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Is it possible that some people are doing things today that are in ignorance and unbelief? (laughs) It's very possible. And Paul said, God showed me mercy because at one time I didn't know what I was doing. He's looking at people teaching in the church at Ephesus. They don't know what they're talking about. He says, I was one of them at one time. I didn't know what I was doing. I thought I was doing right. I thought I was standing up for God, for our, for our history, for our culture. And he says, no, I was a violent, persecuting, blaspheming person. And in verse 14, he says, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. He said, I am what I am by the grace of God. Doesn't he say that? I, I didn't arrive at who I am today by deciding I'm going to be a better person. In his mind, when he was doing all this stuff, he said was really blasphemous. 
He thought he was at the top of the line of being a good person. He had studied. He, he was everything. He achieved everything that he wanted to be. And he didn't realize he was really a blasphemer. Verse 15. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves all, deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus, you ought to underline this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen. Save us. But what does he add to it? Of whom, and an interesting thing here, he does not use the past tense. Is as Paris Reedhead says, we should never think of ourselves beyond what we used to be. That we were that. But he says, of whom I am chief, or worst, chief is in some translation, it's, it's protos, it's like I'm at the front of the line of bad people. If you was to line up the worst of sinners, he says, you know, that first place in the line is reserved for me. He says, I was as bad as they come. It's, it's, it's interesting that he, he labels people outside of the structure and the purpose of God and, and what God wants for their lives. He, he enumerates all these sins and he, and he puts himself in that group. And not only in the group, he says, I, I'm really the worst. In verse 16, and for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me the worst of sinners, that's, it's used again, protos, I am the worst of sinners. Christ Jesus might display his immense Patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. You know what Paul is saying? He said, I was one of those. I was one of those when I when I was converted and people realized I was converted, there was people who says, if he can get saved, I can get saved. If that guy can be saved, I can be saved. Because I'm not anywhere as bad as him. And that's what Paul was saying. God chose me as an example, as an illustration that there's nobody, listen, there's nobody too bad off that he can't save. Even though you may have someone in your mind right now that's like, not them. There is a category. He says, no, there's not a category that they're too bad off. And he's, this is what he's saying. So that in me would be the example of immense patience on the Lord's behalf. And then he breaks out into this praise. And how can we not praise God when we realize what he's done for us? It's kind of like he hits the pause button in writing to Timothy, and he, all of a sudden he, he just stops and has a worship service. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He said, I was there. I was there just like them. I was at the front of the line, but God showed me mercy. Now, I haven't even gotten to the main point of what I want to share. I just want you to see that Paul is writing about his own conversion before he gets to talking about what people need to be doing, about what troubles they see and what conflict they see and what crisis they may be encountering. This is where I really want to take you is the second chapter. How, do, how have we gotten to the point of such a divide in our country? 
And it's a, and it's a division on ideology. It's a division along political lines. It's a division sometimes along racial lines. And I was thinking about this, and we've been privileged to pastor in some really neat places, Jacksonville. And uh, we, were in a, we were in a community called Ocean Way. And we didn't know what Ocean Way was. We thought we had gotten lost when we went to candidate at the church that we ended up pastoring. We looked at each other and says, we're just in woods. There's nothing out here. All of a sudden, we came up, and there's a little convenience store, and we're like, well, maybe there is something out here. It was the road that led to the city dump. <laughs> and it was called Northside Assembly of God. 18 people voted us in. Unanimous. Those were some, those were some desperate human beings. <laughs> we'll never forget our response when the Sunday school teacher got up to teach and bless her heart, she became one of the dearest friends of ours. But we looked at each other and says, oh my goodness. And the Lord led us there. Did not realize that Ocean Way was known as as one of the most racist, segregated places in all of Duval County. And when you hear Jacksonville, the reason why Jacksonville just sounds like it's one big city is because the whole county is incorporated. The city of Jacksonville is the county. And we thought we was going to a city. <laughs> we were going back to where people still hunted wild hogs with pit bulldogs. And some of them, I think, were still operating stills out there in, in the swamplands. And here we have Spencer Jones from Chicago come and preach. And he's African-American pastor in Chicago. They want to start a, an inner city church. And we said, we'll help them. And Michael and Carmela Nelson on their staff came. They actually bought our home. We, we helped establish them. And he preached. And the week after he preached, I got threatening phone calls from anonymous people. Boy, I would have loved to have caller ID back then. <laughs> but I was like, what in the world is going on here? I couldn't believe it. I was like, I grew up in the South. I haven't encountered anything like this. I even had some pushback from some people in the church. One guy was on my church board, confronted me after the service, after something I said in my preaching. I was like, I think I'm back in the 1950s. What happened here? I'm in a twilight zone. But, but all of these sentiments, people make decisions and, and get on certain sides. And, and can I tell you, there's none of that in the church or shouldn't be. The church should be the haven of all people. Everybody the same, the same value. There's no more important person than anyone else. Paul or James even calls the church and says, listen, you get kind of a person notoriety in your church and you march them to the front and you make sure they have a good seat and because they have money. He says, that's, that's ridiculous. You should treat everybody the same. And this is what Paul is getting to. He is about to get to a principle here. I guarantee you, if people in our country, especially people in the church, will listen to 1 Timothy 2 and apply that to every crisis you see on television... In every situation that's controversial, if you take 1 Timothy 2 and apply it to that, you will not be pulled in 
to that controversy. You will be outside of it knowing how to deal with it God's way. Amen. Just, just in case you want to know that. First Timothy 2. I urge you then, first of all, now remember he's already enumerated all of these sinful things that people are doing. He says, so because of that, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. This is what I'm going to urge you to do. That petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And this is not the only time he uses this in just encompassing all people, everybody, four different words for prayers, petitions, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving, be made for all people. And then he gets to this, for kings and all those in authority. I think that might have been just a little bit controversial back then because the Caesars were not really loved by a lot of people. And he's actually telling them, y'all need to pray for him. (laughs) And y'all need to pray for all the civil authorities. Yes, even though they've taken advantage of you, you need to pray for them. You need to pray so that there will be peace. Why does God want peace and order in communities? Paul gives you the answer. That we may live peaceful lives quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. We have become so sensitized to picking sides that we see that God doesn't do that in these controversies. He gives us a clue, though, and this is verse 3. If you do this, this pleases God. One of the things I shared Wednesday night is about we, we oftentimes assign God our emotions. And aren't we glad that he doesn't do that? (laughs) That he doesn't do things by emotion. He works by his own character, his holiness, his goodness, his power. He knows everything. He knows what's going to happen after this service is over, what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen next week. There's no time with him. There's no past, present, future. He is the I am. There's nothing that he doesn't know or doesn't uh, have any kind of lack in his knowledge. And yet he says it pleases God. It pleases God for his people to pray. You will not please the heart of God more beyond worshiping him and entreating him in prayer. It pleases God. He inhabits the praise of his people, does he not? He loves for us to praise him. He loves for us to realize who he is so that it provokes praise from us. But he also, it pleases him to hear us depend on him and to trust him. Now watch, he's not through with this all people thing. Verse 4, what does God want? I knelt next to a hospital bed with a 19-year-old young lady. She's got a lot of problems. Her mother had asked me to to stop in and see. I saw her at ICU Thursday, and she was so sedated. I prayed over her, and uh, yesterday I got a chance to kneel down, and I asked her, what do you want Jesus to do in your life? I'm here to pray for you. She she knew I'd came. They They told her I'd stop by and had prayer for her. 
Her whole family used to come here years and years ago. A lot of medical issues. And she said, I want him to change my whole life. And I, I was able to pray with her. And I, I say, Lord, please redirect her to know that you love her. And that when she calls on you, you're listening to her. I, I tried to absolutely encourage her. When you talk to God, he is always listening. And he has your best interest in mind. That is the truth. You tell that to anyone, you are speaking truth to them. His eyes and his ears are always attentive to those who are entreating him. This is why it pleases him for us to realize that and to call upon him and ask for his intervention because it pleases him to step into our dilemma and bring us help. This is what God wants to do. He wants all people. He wants all people to be saved. Now, as hard as it is for us to think about this, because we see scenes on television that provokes maybe a response of frustration, anger, something, or criticism, you know, all of the horrible scenes from Charlottesville, those people clubbing each other, he wants them to be saved. Amen. He wants them to be saved. My mother, my, my mom would say this, ooh, they need Jesus. <laughs> that was her, she'd see something. If, if she saw Kathy Griffin hold up that whatever, it, she would say, oh, that's terrible. She really needs Jesus. That's what she, when, when, you remember when, um, you know, phone calls would come of sexual harassment and stuff like that? When she got one one time, and, and she said hello, and she did like this. Her eyes got real big, and then she just started speaking in tongues. And she's just speaking in tongues. It's like, oh, somebody must be really in trouble. She's just speaking in tongues. And she hung up. I said, who was that? I said, oh, they said something really nasty, and then the Holy Ghost just came over me, and, and uh, they hung up. <laughs> I said, I bet they did hang up. But that was her. She, she, we grew around with this like instant response. She would see something. She'd see an ambulance come down 280, the, the old ambulance. You know, I don't know, it's a mix between an ambulance and a fire truck. <laughs> and she'd hear that siren, and she would stop what she was doing, and she began to intercede for wherever that was going, whoever was in trouble, whoever was hurting, that God would keep his hand. And that was her. She would look at the worst of situations. And I wish, I wish I was there. That that would be my first reaction. But it's not, not long after that I remember what my mom would say. Ooh, they need Jesus. They need Jesus. For there is one God, verse 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and it's the man Christ Jesus. When John Huss was arrested for heresy, he was a priest in Czechoslovakia in the 1400s. And they interrogated him, and this is, this is where he was really gotten off course. He had actually taught the people in his community, in his parish, in his church, hymns in their own language. And encouraged them to have a personal relationship with the Lord. Well, that was heresy. And they 
you know, challenged him on the doctrine that he was teaching his parish, and they labeled him a heretic and condemned him to death. And one of the things he said in that interrogation was Timothy 2.5. There is one mediator between God and man, and it's the man Christ Jesus. He's the one I'm trusting. They took pages out of John Wycliffe's Bible because it was an outlawed book as the kindling to burn John Huss at the stake in 1415. They, were, they so hated John Wycliffe and for people translating the Bible into the language of the common people. They tracked him down and killed him, made that book illegal. They took the pages of that Bible to light the timber around the feet of John Huss. And in 1415, these were his last words. 1415, think about this. In 100 years, God will raise up a man out of us called for the reforms that cannot be suppressed. Um, 102 years later, Martin Luther nailed the thesis to the castle door. But it was people like John Huss that tried to declare to people, you have one way to God, and it's the person of Jesus Christ. It's not the church that saves you. It's not the church that died on the cross. The church is the result of the death and resurrection of Jesus. The church is the result of salvation. It is not the giver of salvation. And John Hus was called a heretic because he, he declared that Jesus, and there it is. Paul is saying there's one person that operates between us and God, and it's the person of Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This now has been witnessed to you at the proper time. Much of the Protestant Reformation is built on three, on chapter 2, verse 5. There's one mediator. There's one way to God, and it's the person of Christ Jesus. Muslims around the world, I don't know if you realize this, around the world are coming to know the Lord. Isa is the Arabic name for Jesus, Isa. And Isa is coming to people in dreams and visions because there's one way to God, and it's the person of Christ, and he wants all people to be saved. He wants all Buddhists to be saved. He wants all them to come to the knowledge of the truth. He wants them. He wants the Sikhs to be saved. He wants Hindus to be saved. He wants the atheists to be saved. He wants Richard Dawkins saved. He wants that man saved. And I just happen to believe that the Holy Spirit is tracking him. I mean, C.S. Lewis, come on, he was probably one of the most avid atheists until he met Jesus. And it was all over with. He is not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. You think about Jesus hanging on the cross, who he is praying for. So, well, I can't pray for people that are mean to me. I can't pray for people who hurt me. I can't pray for people like that. You can if you do it through the Lord. Because he prayed for people killing him. He prayed for those mocking him. He prayed for those making fun of his agony. He prayed for those who were gambling over the last thing he possessed, and that was his clothes. And he asked the 
He asked the Father to forgive them. Why? Because he's not willing that any should perish. God would have everyone saved. I told you my mother, she would say, oh, they need Jesus. When she came to the Lord, I told people, it says, the Dilgers lived on the other side of the tracks. And when I say other side of the tracks, they were the card-carrying, partying, drinking, fighting people. They were mean. And my mother was the first one out of the whole bunch to get saved. And she started firing off letters to her parents, to her sisters, to her brother, that they need to come to Jesus before it's too late. I, ha- I have a couple of them. And then her husband, which she really felt was a nominal Christian at best, but he didn't know Jesus, and she was, gonna, she was going after him. Her and those little Church of God people that led her into the baptism of the Holy Spirit, she really believed. says, you bring his socks, you bring his car keys, you bring his wallet, you bring any, anything. We'll anoint it with oil. He had so much oil on his stuff, he was wondering what in the world's going on. But they, she had those people interceding for him, tracking him down. He was absolutely, he was either going to get crazy or get saved, one or the other. And he didn't even make it to the altar. My brother remembers, I don't remember, I was too little, I was a toddler, that he got up to leave in that little First Assembly of God church in Childersburg to come to the altar, and he fell on his hands and knees, sobbing about the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I have no doubt in my mind that much of the conviction that was on his life was because she believed 1 Timothy 2. She believed that God wanted her husband saved and that he wanted all her children to be saved because the next one she went after was the rebel in the family, my brother. She went after him. She was tenacious after him. They, they kind of hooked him into coming to church one day to bring his kids, and then they all ganged up on him in the back of the church. And he went down to the altar, and he prayed. He prayed. He, he went along with it. And uh, everybody was so happy. They were clapping. John Lynn got saved. And, and then later at the house, he told my mother, don't you ever do that again, ever. I won't ever step into a church again. And you know what people say? Well, they shouldn't have done that because they pushed him away from God. You didn't have to push him away from God. He was already away. But you know what my mama says? Well, I guess you didn't get saved then, huh? <laughs> okay, we'll just go back and start over. We'll just keep on praying, keep on praying, keep on praying. And I tell you what altar he found, it was his kitchen floor when he dropped to his knees. And this is, this is his repentant prayer, okay? Because God, God really doesn't need much. He said something like this, God, if you're real, help me. And he went down a, a mean, hard, dangerous person. There was people in our school that was afraid of him, even though he weighed about 140 pounds. Because you couldn't hurt him enough in a fight. You had to hurt him really bad. And there's a few that he got hurt really bad. 
No doubt in our culture today, when people pull out a gun and shoot instead of fight, he would have probably been killed. But he got up a transformed man. Called me up. Some of you know that conversation. And said, Charles, I got saved. And I said, you shouldn't joke about stuff like that. I said, that's not funny. And he he says, well, no, really. I says, not really. You shouldn't be joking about stuff like that. Here, man of faith. I've been praying for him. Man of faith. He calls me. He says, he got saved. I said, no, 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 you shouldn't. Come on. And he says, no, really. And he told me a story. And I was like, gee whiz, this is a miracle. (laughs) I thought maybe one of us would have to die. I even prayed at the time, Lord, if somebody in the family has to die so that he doesn't lose his soul in hell for eternity. I'm wide open to whatever you want to do. And I look back now, and, and I just kind of see God looking at me praying that. says, my, aren't we getting dramatic? You, you, think, I need to do, you think I need to kill you so I can save him? Oh, I, got, I'm, I got this. It's kind of like I'm, I'm, I feel like now God is just wanting me to know, I got this. Don't get so dramatic here. You just keep praying, I got this. I know exactly when he's going to drop to his knees giving me that much of an open door to his heart. And I'll change him. Change him, he did. Still serves the Lord at Vincent Revival Center. On the board. Mission-minded. And there's people, when they found out that John Lynn got saved, they didn't believe it either. I told people at a, a class reunion, Greg Abercrombie, he played football. His brother played football with my brother. And I said, Greg... My brother got saved. He said, John Lynn. I said, yeah, that's the only brother I got, John Lynn. He says, he got saved? I said, yes, you're kidding me. I said, that's what I said. <laughs> he said, John Lynn got saved. I said, John Lynn got saved. He said, that's a miracle. That's what I said. It's a miracle. <laughs> there was people who did not believe him. He was, had been arrested. He had been high-speed car chases. He had totaled two cars out, running from the police, got maced, got put in jail. I couldn't count the number of times he was put in jail for fighting, for running from the police. And only I really believe this. 1 Timothy 2 and my mother believing that stood between him and death. No doubt in my mind her intercessory prayer, all the stuff he was doing that was self-destructive, she was right in there, never gave up. And she got to see the joy of her little rebel in the family get off that list. And surrender himself to God. I want to encourage a parent that's here today. Don't give up. God's got this. You stay the course. If the musicians can come. You stay the course. Don't you give up. I will tell you this also. Listen clearly to me. Because I think sometimes we make a mistake on this unconditional love thing. Listen clearly to me. My brother was not allowed to be a prodigal in our home. His behavior was unacceptable. When we give prodigals the opportunity to stay at home and be a prodigal, they don't know where to go to. They're not out there somewhere looking back at home and says, I wished I could go home. When they're allowed to live a rebel life under a roof, 
they may never have a contrast to say, I'm living the wrong life. I remember when he packed his bags and left, when they drew the line in the sand, my mother weeping. She didn't want to see him leave, but she knew he couldn't live that way in, in our house. But you stay the course. Those decisions are tough decisions. When my dad told him, he said, Johnny, you cannot live here and have your set of rules and the rest of the kids have a different set of rules. He said, well, I'm out of here then. He went and throwed some stuff in a suitcase and he walked out of the house. Mad. Man of anger. But there's no doubt in my mind that that was the turning point in him realizing that what he wanted to do could not be done in our house. You handle it the best way you know to handle it. I'm just telling you. Don't compromise your convictions and your truth when someone is abusing truth. Pray for them. Don't condemn them already. He was a miserable human being. I'll tell you this briefly. He was so desperate. He was so miserable. He was about to leave Kay and two little kids because he, in his, he said, Charles, I was making life so miserable for everybody it would be better for me just to get out of my kids' life and, and, and let, let Kay have the kids and just drive somewhere and start over. I was messing up everybody's life. And he couldn't tell his little six-year-old daughter that daddy's leaving. And he walked back into the kitchen and dropped to his knees and said, God, if, if you're real, help me. There was a lot going on there. But don't you give up. Don't you lose hope. Because God wants everybody to be saved. Will you stand with me?